leadership anxiety, yours and theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Friends, today's guest is George Acevedo. Uh, George is the cousin of a good friend of mine. He comes from a Puerto Rican background, although he was raised in the United States. He's the lead pastor of Grace Church, which is a multi-site United Methodist congregation in Florida. But I was most interested in chatting to George, not just because he's a lead pastor, I always enjoy chatting with pastors, but because the Methodist Church for several years has had George go to their convention as they discuss the LGBTQ conversation, particularly as it relates to a spectrum of perspectives in the Methodist Church. Uh, They've met on this several times over several years, and just recently came to a conclusion, and George was in the thick of all of that. So I thought it would be interesting to hear from him, what is it like when you have to have a very difficult and very personal conversation with a wide variety of people on a highly volatile topic that's extremely personal to people? So here's George. When we first met, uh, one of the things to the, I really think to the genius of our leadership, we spent a lot lot of time, uh, we read uh, a heart, uh, heart at peace, um, oh, a work, a work of peace, heart of peace, um, uh, the Albin Institute book uh, around what does it mean for us to live at peace uh, with others and ourselves as we have uh, engaging conversations, and um, and and can we can we separate um, ideas from persons, and can, can you know, and in our culture that's really difficult to do, you know. So, um, so we spent time doing that and we spent time getting to know one another, hearing each other's story. And we spent time, uh, building covenant, uh, a actual written covenant as to, uh, flip flipping talks a lot about social contracting. You know, what is, um, the way we use it in our church, it's language that we use in our church is, uh, there, there are vows that we take before we need the vows. Uh, I, I lovingly tell our leaders here, you know, the bride and the groom don't need their vows on their wedding day. Uh, they're they're, at the, they're on their best behavior. They need it six weeks later when his underwear is on the floor, you know, and they have to figure out how do we navigate that. That's when they oh yeah that love honor cherish thing, yeah that that's so we we take our vows before we need our vows and so so before we began to engage in what was very difficult conversation about persons because we're not we're not talking about global warming we're talking about uh, lesbian gay bisexual transgendered people who already so come people, to this conversation with a good deal of damage done or, or, or yeah, yeah yeah um i heard one christian leader uh, evangelical christian leader in north america say he spent several years uh on in a monthly bit conversation <clears throat> with gay persons in his church some side a gay and some side b gay persons um allow or be chased kind of the deal and he said uh, the common denominators was uh, every one of them had tried to change and couldn't. Every one of them had tried to commit suicide, and every one of them thought about abandoning the faith. You know, so um, there was a commonness to the uh, and a sensitivity to those realities. So we tried to before we engaged in those kind of conversations about people and the extent of their inclusion in the life of our church. We we worked pretty hard at trying to build a culture of trust as much as is possible. And I think, I don't think, I know that you know better than I do from family systems studies and from system studies. It takes 
you know, time is the lubricant to build trust. You just got to spend time together. So we're already limited because we're kind of flying in from all parts of the world trying to get to know one another. So you tend to gravitate towards those whom, whom, for whom the, the culture allows the conversation to be more similar than dissimilar. Um, and so there was often the richest conversations happened uh, while we were on break, you know. Um, but I, even saying that, I would say that there was rich, healthy disagreement uh, in the room. And it never really felt like, I mean, there were a few moments where it got tense, particularly when um, when um, a, a gay or a lesbian person would 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 become autobiographical. Um, uh, you could feel the temperature in the room go up yeah. because now the reality is. I mean, it's it's one thing to talk about: do we do weddings? Do we ordain? You know, self about practicing um, homosexuals, and then to have the this child of God, you know, sitting there in the room with us, sharing their autobiographical story, which was often a story of pain, you know. And um, frankly, I don't care how conservative you are about that issue. It, it changes the narrative um, or, or it changes at least the tone of the narrative, uh, you, you know, uh, when, when you're having those conversations. Uh, when you were asked to join the commission, was there anything you were afraid of or anxious about going into that first meeting? I'm an adult child of an alcoholic and um uh, kind of my temperament is is um, I'm not afraid of conflict, but I don't like it. It, it takes a toll on me personally. Uh, I, I feel it. I feel it in my body. You know, when when conflict arises, um, but I'm not afraid to engage in it. Um, so you know, my anxieties were more, uh, uh, and they're low. They were low grade. And I think again, I've done enough therapy and recovery and spiritual formation in my life that was able to keep those impulses in check of uh, this is not a space where I have to either impress or where everybody has to get along. It's okay to live in the tension of the room. Um, I don't have to solve everything, which I think is a, is often a default for clergy, you know, we're problem solvers. I want to, this, you know, that sort of deal. Um, and particularly because we would do work and then we would go away for weeks and maybe do some outside work and then come back. Um, the good thing was that there was kind of an emotional reset, <laughs> you know, because you'd kind of come back to that same space and then come back into it with a kind of a new perspective. We'd work really hard. Sometimes it'd get tense and then we'd, we'd break and everybody would go home. invited to do leadership type conversations like this. I'll, I'll talk about my three conversions. Uh, my first conversion was to Christ uh, in 1978. And my second conversion was to the bride of Christ somewhere in the early nineties, where I realized I had a very unbiblical kind of view of the church 
Um, she was kind of utilitarian to me and not the beautiful bride of Christ, the body of Christ is painted in scripture. So I had a second conversion. I actually fell in love with the church, the local church, with all of her complexities and messiness and all the rest. And my third conversion happened about 13 years ago, uh, after I'd been here for 10 years, uh, when one of my lifelong colleagues, my Tim- one of my Timothys who works here with me, I've known him since he was 13. He's now 48, and we've served together in three churches, and he's been here with me for 13 years. And uh, he pastors the largest, he's the senior pastor. Um, I function more as a presiding elder, so he's a senior pastor of the largest original campus now for 13 years he's been in that role. And he asked me at my 10th anniversary here, he had just gotten here, uh, and he said, what do you want the next 10 years to be about? And I said, I'd like to do this with you. Um, my relationships mean a great deal to me. And I said, and, and I'd like to, if, if God would allow us to help other leaders. And he said, would you be willing to shift in the way you lead? So my third conversion has been a, a leadership conversion. And this is the language I would put in it. And it was, it's probably been of the three, the most painful. Um, uh, and it was a conversion from heroic solo leader to a generative team leader. Um, 13 years ago, uh, we had about 40 employees because we have a preschool. Um, and uh, they basically were all direct reports to me. Um, today, I have four direct reports. And um, my, my direct influence has gotten smaller, while the reality is my leadership influence has gotten broader and deeper. Would you say anxiety begins for you in a spinning mind, a racing heart, or a tightening gut? A spinning mind. Could you tell us a little more about that? Sure, sure. Um, maybe a little too autobiographical, but uh, I don't think so. Uh, even this morning, I, I'm, I'm teaching a Bible study. I haven't taught a midweek Bible study in eight to ten years, and I, I just had a new book that was released uh, called Neighboring about what does it mean to neighbor well. And um, just a s- small little book that's a part of an eight, eight book series that our denomination asked me to write that piece on. So I wrote it. Um, and um, so we're in a, happened to be we're in a series on neighboring. And so we said, hey, do you want you just do a Bible study using your book? So I woke up this morning about 430. And my back's been hurting me a little bit. So I was a little stiff, tried to stretch it a little bit. Um, and my mind started racing about the Bible study. And I, now I stand up in front of groups regularly. It's not a big, but my mind was racing about the content because I had this morning was put it on paper and get it done and uh, had some ideas sketched out. But, but um, I would be lying to you to tell you that I didn't just drift off to sleep. The, Squirrels in the cage were turning. Are you going to do this? You talk about that. You know, hey, you're not done. You're, you know, that the sort of deal. I eventually, you know, 45 minutes later, I was dead to the wind, uh, you know, and dead to everything. And so, uh, but no, in my mind, it, it's clearly in my mind. And and it can be, you know, that's a simple one, but it could be uh, 
anticipating a difficult conversation with a colleague. Yeah, it, and, in that the case, George, do you preempt? Do you try to worry about every possible scenario to get ahead of it? No, I, I would say that uh, my coping mechanisms are just to, um, uh, at the risk of sounding over spiritual, is to is to is to invite God into that space. Um, to uh, I've tried to teach our people that the difference between worry is direction. You know, worry turns it inward, uh, where prayer turns it upwards. And so to try to practice the kind of the Philippians 4 thing, uh, pray about everything. Um, uh, I think gratitude, I've learned from my friends in recovery um, and in my own recovery that gratitude is a gift. Um, I think leaning into, and again, these are all mental things. I think leaning into the trust of the relationship is a big part of that. Uh, for me, uh, is it, and so those have increasingly become, I wouldn't call them my defaults, but they've become my response to the default of the anxiety. Yeah, I th- the anxiety still seems to be, an, if you will, a natural default. Um, and I, I don't, you know, I, uh, I one time I asked one of my mentors, this is before I even came here, when I was an executive pastor at a church, I said, does it always hurt when people leave your church? And this was an old season guy. And he said, absolutely. And then he said this, and I'd be worried if it didn't. You, you, you know, so I think there's a, I don't know if it's healthy anxiety, but, you know, when I'm, if I'm coming in to talk to Wes, this guy that I've known since he was 13, and we're going to talk about a really tough issue, I'm probably going to be a little sleepless the night before. And I hope I am. Because I think if I get cavalier about it, then I moved to use from the language of the confession, uh, the the the, uh, the anatomy of peace was the name of the book. Is then I moved from a heart at peace to a heart at war, and heart at war is treating West like an object instead of like a person. I put him in a box instead of allowing him to be the person that he is. And so I sure hope that I'm anxious because I have to because we're we might be treading where angels dare not go. You, you, you know, as we're talking about some difficult things. So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think what you're saying is actually um, really important to capture because what I'm hearing from you, George, is you're saying, yeah, I'm human, and if I wasn't feeling it, there'd be something even more wrong. Uh, but you're not letting it plague you. You're not letting it – like anxiety can tend to grab us and then kind of toss us around. I, I grew up um, Western Australia. I went to the beach most days of my life. And, you know, you can catch that wave that doesn't just dump you, but then tosses you over and over like a spin cycle. I appreciate how you're telling us that you have actively built some interventions in your life, some spiritual practices. And And I think because I'm a, uh, I'm a highly relational person, uh, extrovert on, you know, Myers-Briggs stuff and all the rest, I I would say that I'm not, I mean, it, it doesn't take me very long when the squirrels start to spin for me to pick up the phone and, text one of my covenant brothers or all of them. We have, a matter of fact, we have an ongoing text stream and just say, Hey guys, you know, man, I, I'm just like worried, sick about this meeting. I got, I need your prayers, you know, and scripture verses will come back. They're, they're not an overly spiritual group. It might be a, a, a meme or something, you know, to try to, you know, <laughs> so long as uh, it isn't an imprecatory Psalm. <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. They're, they don't go there. And, you know, 
So yeah, I think there's I bet I built in some some antidotes, if you will, when they come. Now I, I still get surprised by anxiety at times. And I I had a I had a situation um a few weeks ago. Um uh June and July in Florida is difficult on worship attendance. Uh, we live in Sunstone <laughs> State, and a lot of people head to the mountains and stuff. And I was in a season, I don't know why, it's a little space where um, my identity in God was not as rooted as it could be. And we all know that that's a moving target for all of us. Um, and I stood up at the last service, and there just were too many empty seats. And I actually had a low-grade panic attack where my voice started to get a little and it was not my throat was hurting. It was I was losing wind in my lungs. I, I was feeling light of breath. And my wife said to me afterwards, she comes to that later service. She said, is, is your throat OK? Do you got some postnasal drip going on? You know, baby, I don't know what was going on, but it was connected to my to, to my sense of worth and value. I would say if I can if I can take the time to tell you this little uh, kind of God moment in all of that. Uh, two weeks later, I'm at Holy Trinity Brompton in, of Alpha Fame in London, and a pastor stands up during a, what they call their ministry time and uh, gives a prophetic word that there's a pastor here who struggles with anxiety and feels good about himself when when things are good in ministry and doesn't feel so good when things are not so good. And man, I fought the Holy Spirit to not go and let that guy lay hands on me and pray. And eventually, you know, the Holy Spirit typically wins out in all of our lives. And I, <laughs> out. he was no more than 15 feet away. And I said, I, I, I'm that guy. Oh, that's me. Yeah. And, and uh, he laid hands on me and he prayed. And there was some like instant kind of transformation, inner transformation, and then proceeded to speak two prophetic words where I'd be lying to you to tell you it was like, I was going like, is this guy getting my email? Yeah. Does he have the password to my personal journal? Yeah. He was, he was, he was hitting on stuff that what I really believe were the stuff behind the stuff. It was the root of some of the anxiety. It wasn't the worship attendance. It really has to do with my sense of what is it that God has for me in this last chapter of full-time vocational ministry. That's really the presenting issue that when I look at my journal, when I look at my conversations, and this guy nailed two things that were futuristic, that like God's calling you into. One was uh, investing in next generation leaders, and the others was book writing. And this guy didn't know me from Adam or Adam's house cat, but he was just nailing it, just nailing it. And so, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, okay, yeah. George, you just mentioned Adam's house cat. It does raise a spontaneous question. Do you believe philosophically that cats mm -hmm. are part of the Genesis 1 creation or post-Genesis 3 fall yeah. of man created? Uh, no doubt, in my, at least in my theology. Cats are of the devil. Okay, um, yeah, post-Genesis 3. Post-Genesis 3. They, they, cats are in there with um, ties. Oh, ties, Ty. yeah, yeah. They choke off your carotid arteries. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, that's clearly ca cats are fallen. Okay. Cats are fallen. That's helpful. Because here in Colorado, Canada geese are the same. Yeah. Like, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, all right. We have we have iguanas down here, too. Oh, yeah. That's right. You do. Yeah. They're just like, oh, 
We brought them up from Brazil and they just won't go away. Right. So. Yeah, you also have the the pythons formerly known as pets. Python. Yeah. It's pets yeah, yeah. that live in Everglades, yeah. Okay. Um I think one of the fallacies that younger believers believe is that leaders should know what to do. But doesn't matter how long you've been in leadership. It feels to me like there's a good percentage of the time where we actually don't know what to do. Could you give us an example of a time recently where you didn't know what to do? Sure, sure. Um, we've, you know, one of the, uh, we all know that no matter how many workshops, seminars, conferences you go to, that taking what you learn and applying it to your context um, it's kind of like teaching a, a cat to sing, you know, hard on the cat, not going to sound real good. Um, that that mo most of us need are some driving principles that we then with really smart people sit in a room and figure out what that looks like. So for us, being multi-site has never been, you know, going to seacoast or north coast or elevation and learning what they do and applying it. It's been it's been uh, in the word, is it a uh, cotter? Uh, it's been building the bridge while you walk on it. And so we've laid a plank and walked and laid a plank and walked and laid a plank. And, um, and so our multi-site ministry has been inventing on the go. Um, and uh, recently we, we have a very clear, clear kind of discipleship path that we try to help people walk through. Um, we, we use four words, reach, connect, form, and send. And it's kind of, to use Jim Collins language, it's kind of our discipleship flywheel. And we think if we just get better at doing that, we can grow more fully devoted disciples. So, um, and so we have a high degree of experimentation around here and, and we were trying to do some send ministries, uh, particularly on our global side, our global mission partners. We were trying to do that across campuses. And we gave a staff person that responsibility from the original campus right here in Cape Coral. And we did it with four individual staff persons over a period of about 10 years. And none of the four of them, all high capacity leaders could get it done. And ironically, I didn't know what to do. Um, but because I've moved from being a heroic solo leader to a generative team leader, I brought it to our operational team that deals with the adaptive problems of our kind of Again, we use the word global, not an in international, but as in all the campuses, there's four campuses. And brought it to the to the pastoral team that gives oversight to the whole of the church, but also are also the boots on the ground at each individual campus. And um, and we spent three hours in the room whiteboarding it, and we think we've come up with at least a temporary solution. But um, I had coming into that meeting, uh, had a little bit of that anxiety because it involves people and relationships. Some of these global partners we've had relationships with for 20 years. We've been in their homes in India and Africa and around the world. And we they're, they're precious to us. And so we don't want to do any harm to those relationships. Um, so, yeah, that, that was an example of Monday. That was Monday. Right on. And uh, another thing we train our leaders in is how to notice when anxiety spreads in a group. Uh, the, the theory of chronic anxiety, almost like if we all have a bucket, and there's anxiety in it, we dump it into the next person and it ends up being a flood. You've obviously experienced that in the general conference meetings. Yeah, um, yeah. But one of the signs of it is when an organization is stuck and, and the problem has become a chronic problem. So 
you can now predict that the problem is going to happen. Next time the problem happens, you're the least surprised person. Do you have a, a, an example of a time where you see that your church has gotten stuck, where you do the same problem again and again and your solutions have been either try harder or your solutions have been more of the same? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, uh, 13 years ago, um, really felt like God wanted us to buy this grocery store. And so this is before the recession. This was in 2006. And uh, there was an empty grocery store a third of a mile down the street and uh, eight and a half acres, uh, about 40,000 square feet. I mean, it's a big piece of property. And uh, we bought it at fair market value, about $6 million, and then entered into the worst recession since the Great Depression. And Southwest Florida, where I live, uh, was the uh, hardest hit community first into the Great Recession. Uh, about one in 12 of our community lost their homes. And so navigating that, uh, what you know, we had done some capital campaigns previous to that and had knocked it out of the park in terms of people's generosity uh, and the project that we worked on. And so we rolled out this one, had great response. We raised a million dollars in cash. We had a couple of million dollars in pledges. And then the recession hit and our pledges came in at 50%. And, um, uh, you know, it just, it was devastating to us. And so we're trying to keep this building going and open and ministry. And, and we just, we got stuck in a cycle of, we've got to save the building. We've got to save the building. We've got to save the building. And uh, it, it, uh, while we're trimming back staff, while we're trimming back ministry, while giving is declining, while worship, ironically, is going up, worship attendance is going up, the giving is going down. Um, and so we we could not see the forest for the trees. And, and, it, and it, it took us several years to um, uh, ever get to some place of resolve around that. And... Um, Ironically, the resolve came when one of our young pastors said in a meeting, why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are we living with this this chronic anxiety that all of us, we sit in this room every week and we talk about the same issue. How are we going to get enough money to keep this building open? Now, we were doing great things. I mean, we we fed 250,000 people. We, you know... We led a thousand people to Christ. We, you know, we were doing remarkable social ministry in the name of Jesus in our community, and yet it was coming at a huge uh, price, uh, particularly to the leadership of the church, both the lay leadership that has um, administrative or legislative responsibility and the operational staff that has adaptive responsibilities. And those two teams were bearing the weight, I happen to be one of them, of trying to keep this building open. And uh, eventually this young staff leader said, I just think we need to sell it. And it doesn't matter how much we lose. We just need to sell it. And it was like the heavens parted and Moses came down with the Ten Commandments because it was that simple. But because, again, we're in the trees, we're in the thickets, we can't see. And... uh, um, and I wonder how many years we spent in that spot. I can't even, I, 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 three, four years of that, of trying to solve a problem 
uh, that nobody wanted, nobody really had the, and myself included, had the institutional courage to say, it's not a, it's not a um, defeat for us to sell this building. Yeah, one of the probably most famous names in systems theory, Ed Friedman, he yeah. he calls what you're describing imaginative gridlock. Mm. You just you've lost your ability to imagine, and so you keep trying to get tired answers to old questions. Yeah. Oh God, you're you're giving language to what we did. Yeah, yeah. we all do it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it just it was, you know, it it impacted all of our wellness. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I tell you what gets really humbling too is like I train people on this stuff and I still do it. Like none of us escape, (laughs) none of us escape our own system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. George, I'll I'll close with this question. Um, I think one of the great challenges of every pastor specifically is we do conflate being a child of God with being an employee of God. You have inferred that with some of your identity talk. So I would love to hear from you. When in your life do you feel most fully loved? Yeah. Um, I would say um, Thursday night and Friday night. Um, Thursday night, um, uh, my four grandchildren, uh, 11, 9, 7, and 4 come to grandma and grandpa's house and we swim in the pool and we um, go down to the playground and we, we watch Harry Potter movies and we go get ice cream and we eat tacos and we have picnics and have breakfast in the morning. And um, I take them to school and um, my grandchildren, the birth of my, my granddaughter's getting ready to turn 12 uh, she's in middle school, which scares old grandpa to death because uh, I know what middle school boys are like and because I was one. And uh, but uh, uh, when when she was born, something shifted in me that I that was it that was teton, tetonic, you know, it was like, you know, and this matters. I'm using this as kind of ministry. It matters, but it's not everything. And not even before God, is it everything? And I, I don't know that having grandkids is one I would say. And if I could just add beneath that two little comments, because um, I think this could be helpful to maybe to somebody who's listening to this. Um, my family's experienced two traumas. Uh, one long and extended and the other one very momentary that helped in this arena around uh, on most days, allowing my identity in Christ to live above my work that I do for Christ. Um, And that is my youngest son's 16 year struggle with opiate addictions that for us has led him in and out of rehab and in and out of jail and, and drug overdoses and suicide attempts and, and, and um, felonies and all of those kinds of things. And by the grace of God, he's doing better today. Um, but he's not, I wouldn't say he's out of the woods. I mean, he's not using by the grace of God for more than two and a half years, longest season since he was 16. He's 31 right now. 
that'll strip away a lot of that. I mean, there was a season when we were the fastest growing United Methodist Church in America, and my son was homeless and on the streets. And frankly, it just right sizes all of that, you, you know. Um, so there, there's that. And then the other was my my, my daughter-in-law uh, in a very hurried moment ran over my 18-month-old granddaughter, our youngest. And she nearly died. She was airlifted and all that sort of stuff. And by the grace, seven days later, walked out with no long-term injuries, no, you know, um, it was hellish for our family. And I, and I would say those two very anxious moments, one, an anxious season, really an anxious decade and a half, and the other an anxious uh, several weeks, um, those things have a way of, um, I heard a guy once say, and I, I don't think it gets attributed to, you know, never trust a leader who doesn't have a limp. Um, yeah, Dan Allender wrote a book called Dan Allender uh, wrote a book, yeah, yeah. Limp, yeah. I think there was somebody before him actually said that, but uh, Dan, Dan popularized it. And, and these had been my limp giving experiences that right sizes kind of some of the value. And I love what I do, but my identity is no longer defined by what I do. And I don't know, I couldn't have said that through my thirties and into my forties. I don't know if that's a function of age I don't know if that's a function of experience. I'll just take it. That's all, that's all I would say. So, yeah. So uh, you said, what, when, when am I most alive? I would say on Thursdays when I'm with my grandkids, uh, Thursday nights and, and Friday mornings. And then Friday nights, date night for my wife and myself. And we typically start, uh, she's a teacher and she has a little control because she's a, kind of an administrator. And so she has a little control of her schedule. So she typically comes home early because I take Fridays off and, Friday morning is my solitude, stillness, silence time. And, and after the kids are gone, I spend, I linger in scripture and prayer and silence and all the rest. And uh, then I start doing some honey-do lists. And then she's typically home by about two o'clock. And we're out there having the early bird special with all the old people in Southwest Florida. And we grab a movie and then we come home and uh, enjoy each other and uh, maybe watch some more TV or go for a walk or take a swim in the pool or or, or just go to bed, you know, and um, uh, I'm very privileged to be married to my high school sweetheart, and we still have a rich, deep, genuine love and respect for each other, and um, and those times, uh, those times are life-giving to me, and then they give me this, the, the kind of internal strength to do what I need to do Saturday through Thursday, does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. We do Saturday night services. So, so my week, you know, my Monday through is Saturday through Saturday through Thursday. And, uh, um, you know, Saturday night through, through Thursday afternoon, uh, is my kind of work schedule. And, uh, so yeah. Good. George, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks. You shared so much with us that I think is just really rich. So thank you for your time. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.